start on uh, today's talk. Uh, my name is John, John Lambert. If you don't know me, I'm one of the uh, members here. And it's uh, such a privilege to be sharing from God's Word with you this morning. We're actually going to be looking at quite a long passage of Scripture today. It takes about seven minutes to read it, so it's quite long. Um, so I did wonder briefly if I should condense it down and only read parts of it. But then I decided it's far better for everybody to hear words that are 100% inspired by God than my thoughts on it, which even on a good day are never 100% inspired by God. So I'm going to read it in full shortly. But before I do that, I just want to give you a, a little preview, really, of what the opening verse is and the last verse says. Our passage today starts by stating that the apostles, that's the 12 men that Jesus appointed to lead the church, the early church, performed many signs and wonders amongst the general population. And it says that all the believers were really highly regarded by the general population and that um, ever-increasing numbers uh, believed in the Lord and were added to the church. And it says that crowds began to gather from outside Jerusalem, from the neighboring towns, bringing sick and demon-possessed people. Uh, and it says not just some of them, but all of them were healed. And so the gospel was now going beyond the city of Jerusalem where it started, and it was now beginning to penetrate into Judea, the surrounding region around it. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's how our reading is going to begin. And the end of the chapter strikes a similarly encouraging note with these upbeat words. And I quote in full, it says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming that the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's the bookends, really, of our reading this morning. And if you did not know the content of the 24 verses between that opening section and the last verse, you'd never guess it. You'd never guess. If all we knew was the beginning and the end, uh, we would be forgiving that for supposing that Acts chapter 5 must be about the unrelenting progress and blessing and favor uh, and joy of the advance of the gospel, but it isn't. It's actually about, mostly, it's about trouble, big trouble. There's jealousy, there's false arrest, incarceration, a prison break, civil disobedience, fear of rioting, angry confrontations, death threats, grievous bodily harm, and public humiliation. That's what it's about. This is a passage of scripture that proves the rule that Christians are like tea bags. Did you know that? A friend of mine called Gillian says, Christians are like tea bags. You're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are like a tea bag in this respect. The test of your strength is when you get into really hot water. It's a bit cheesy, that, isn't it? The test of your strength is when you get into hot water. And in Acts chapter 5, it really reaches boiling point. Now, so far, the apostles have been mocked and jeered in chapter 2. They've been harassed 
and threatened in chapter 4. But chapter 5, this chapter, contains the first ever recorded occurrence of Jesus' followers actually getting beaten up. And we need to say right at the start that God allows and even sends difficulty in our lives at times to build up our spiritual muscle and resistance. See, trouble may refine the church, but it can never remove it. God's church will exist for all time. It's him that's building it. And so as the momentum builds with the growth of the church, so does the resistance. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Whenever the gospel advances, the enemy gets annoyed and he starts kicking off. Uh, the Baptist pastor, some of you know his writings well, John Piper once said this, and I love this quote, listen to this. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard and your risks will be high and your joy will be full. That's absolutely right. Nowhere in the Bible is that truth more eloquently illustrated than in this section we're looking at today, Acts 5, 12 to 42. So it's going to come up on the screen. Let's read what it says. It says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. And that's the part of the temple complex where there was all that commotion uh, in chapter 3 about the healing of the uh, crippled beggar. It says this, nobody dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. That seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? But it just means, generally speaking, people didn't risk associating with them in the public place, the provocative open-air preaching in the temple, but they did come in increasing numbers to meetings in homes, and that's how the church grew. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed." Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And you can understand why. Uh, these professional clergy types are attracting only a fraction of the kind of crowds flocking to hear untrained fishermen who are preaching on their own patch. So you can see why they're annoyed and jealous. It says, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, sorry, opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell people not about this new religion, but about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. Michael talked about this the other week, didn't he? The full assembly 
of the elders of Israel and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee called Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And because the authorities had forbidden them to speak about Jesus, they resolved to be good citizens and meekly keep the peace. Except it doesn't say that, actually. It says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word. It's been great to worship you this morning and sing about the happy day that you are raised from the dead and to sing about our Redeemer. 
and uh, that one day we're going to stand in glory. It's great, Lord, to stand together and sing your praises and rejoice and worship you. We love your presence with us, and now we pray that you'll help us to um, get to, uh, to mine your word and get great treasure out of it, Lord. Increase our faith today, we pray, as we engage with what you have given us, this truth, this treasure, the word of God. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 5, as you can see, is about a season in the life of the church where the Holy Spirit is being poured out in a really extraordinary way. Many sick people are getting miraculously healed in the streets, uh, sometimes in unprecedented ways. Shadows falling upon them just get healed. Demons are getting cast out from tormented souls. And there's a rising tide of faith as people can see evidence of God's grace and power at work. And consequently, the number of believers is growing. Happy days. People are coming to Christ and being added to the church. And this is what we all want, isn't it? Well, three of us do. Which is what we all want. Of course we do. I don't know a Christian anywhere who doesn't want to see the church grow and flourish. And many studies have been commissioned on fast-growing churches. Thousands of books have been written about church growth. How do you achieve it? How do you get your church to grow? What are the key ingredients in a growing church? How do you track it? How do you measure it? How do you maintain it when you've got it? Loads of books are written about this stuff, but the New Testament never talks about the principles and strategies of church growth. Have you noticed that? Instead, it focuses, especially in the letters, on church health. Church health. Because if your plants are healthy, if they've got the right amount of light, the right amount of water, if they're planted in the right kind of soil, they'll just grow naturally. If your child is healthy, or if your pet is healthy, if you feed them and care for them properly, they will grow naturally all by themselves. Healthy churches grow all by themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got a friend called Scott who's a vet, and he once got a phone call, this is a true story, from a man who sold him a Labrador puppy in a pub, and he was a bit worried because this animal didn't seem to be getting any bigger. So Scott thought, well, this sounds really interesting. Maybe it's some sort of growth hormone deficiency or something abnormal. Uh, he said, bring it in. I'll, I'll examine him. So this guy brings his pet in, and Scott gives this poor animal a thorough investigation, which concludes with these devastating words. Sir, the good news is that your pet is quite normal. Uh, the bad news is that bloke in the pub sold you a guinea pig. <laughs> that is actually a true story. Can you believe that? And when a church is healthy, when it's got godly leadership, godly shared leadership, when it's got sound Bible teaching, when it's got um, relevant evangelism, when it's got eventful worship where God's presence is there, where it's got expectant prayer and loving fellowship, it becomes an unstoppable force. Healthy churches grow by the power of the Spirit all by themselves. So pray for kings. Pray for kings to be healthy above all. And then God will bless it with the best kind of growth.
Well, I wish it were our experience that everyone we prayed for, for healing, got better. Like it says here in verse 16. It isn't the case, alas. I wish it were our experience that everybody we invited to follow Jesus did so there and then without hesitation. And so that conversions would occur daily, as it says they did in Acts 2.47. But that isn't the case either, is it? But what I do know is this. More sick people get healed when we step out in faith and pray for them than when we don't. Yeah? And the more, more people give their lives to Christ when we take the risk and invite them to become Christians than when we don't. It's true, isn't it? I wish I were a better witness, a better evangelist than I am. I'm a bit rubbish at it, to be honest. But sometimes the very best evangelism is simply telling somebody you're a Christian and then not being a complete jerk. And all of us, practically all of us, can do that. Well, it's great to read this stuff in the Acts of the Apostles. I just love it. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. But are you tempted to, con to compare what we've just read here with your own experience and conclude that God must have just done things differently back then and that everything's changed now? Somebody I know who leads a church up here in the Northeast was training to be a vicar a few years ago in, in Cambridge. And he was in this boring lecture. He was telling me about this boring lecture. I think it was about tax arrangements for clergy or something like that. And he started to daydream in the middle of this lecture when out of the blue, he had an impression in his mind, in his spirit, that somebody was standing on a nearby street corner outside his training college, and that he should approach this person and invite them to become a Christian. Right in the middle of this lecture, like that. And this is how he tells the story. He said, I put it to the back of my mind, but about 10 minutes later, the thought returned. With more detail, there's a woman standing on the corner of Ridley Hall Road. She hasn't seen her son in 10 years. Go and speak to her and invite her to become a Christian. What would you do? So he says, should I walk out of the lecture in the middle of the lecture or should I stay? And he said, I stayed. But a bit later, he said, a third thought entered my mind with even more detail than the second time. There's a woman standing on the corner of Ridley Hall Road. She hasn't seen her son in 10 years. She's meeting up with him tomorrow. Go and tell her it's going to be okay and then invite her to become a Christian. And he thought, that's right, I'm going. So he gets up in the middle of his lecture and walks straight out, uh, out of the college gates, and he walked up to the place that he had seen in his mind's eye. And there she was, standing on the corner, all alone. He said, I went up to her and introduced myself. He said, my name's Ben, hi. Uh, I'm training to be a vicar in that college behind me. And then he said, I told her that I think God just told me that she hadn't seen her son in 10 years. And she burst into tears. And uh, he said, I told her that she would see him tomorrow and that would, would be okay. And amazingly, she confirmed that indeed they had agreed to meet up the very next day for the first time in a decade. 
And then he, he uh, invited her to become a Christian. Why don't you become a Christian now? And understandably, she wanted to know a little bit more about what that involved. So we took her into the college common room, public place, and he made her a cup of tea, and he explained to her the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead. He loves you. He wants to fill your life. And it turned out this woman was actually a witch, uh, really into the occult. She gave her heart to Christ that morning, and she's been walking as a newborn Christian ever since. I tell that story because this isn't just from a dusty book about first century Jerusalem 2,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago. This is Jesus in 21st century England. This happened just a few years ago. This is what Jesus does. This is what he's like today. Well, you can imagine the euphoria of that moment in my friend Ben, seeing that happen and seeing God speak to him and having the the courage to get up and do it and seeing that it was all just as God had announced. But have you ever noticed that the highest spiritual highs are usually followed by the lowest spiritual lows? That's right, isn't it? And as sure as night follows day, whenever God does a beautiful thing, our enemy, the devil, reacts. And right on cue, that's exactly what happens here in Acts 5. In verses 17 to 24, they put the apostles behind bars uh, under lock and key, and they order them to shut up. Now, remember, we are, if we're a Christian this morning, we are followers of one who was despised and rejected by the world. So we should hardly be surprised, actually, if we find that it dislikes us at times. And it does, and it will. And Jesus said as much, actually, in John chapter 15, verse 18, he said this, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. But back in Acts chapter 5, before the authorities have finished their breakfast the next morning, these men are out preaching in the temple again, making an absolute nuisance of themselves. Uh, An angel has let them out of prison. And if you read the book, The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun, Oh, yeah, just a few of you. Well, it's a highly recommended book about a Chinese Christian. It talks about how the same thing happened to him in Red China a few years ago. It was, it's a book that really details his sufferings, really, for Christ. And he was beaten to within an inch of his life, locked up in a maximum security prison. And he walked out in broad daylight as God opened every door and shut the eyes of every prison guards. An amazing testimony. Well, the Jewish leaders complain here in verse 28 that these believers are making them feel guilty, talking about Jesus. You've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, they say. And just a few weeks earlier, at Jesus's trial in Matthew 27, they had said this, his blood is on us and on our children. But that's all forgotten now. Now they're desperately trying to save face. They're trying to win the argument. They're trying to preserve their position and their cushy jobs. They could have said, and what they should have said is this, God is obviously with you people. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Clearly, we have sent an innocent man to his death. We can see now we have made a terrible mistake. If they'd done that, they would have been forgiven. 
and cleansed of a guilty conscience. They would have been filled with the Holy Spirit there and then and saved from an eternity of wretchedness, being cast out of God's presence forever. They would have been able to sing, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away like we did this morning. But no, they just forbid these men once again from speaking about Jesus. And that is when Peter says, we can't do that. We must obey God rather than human beings. John Stott, in his uh, commentary on Acts, says this, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and, generally speaking, to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or to forbid what he commands, then a Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority and to obey God's. Some years ago, as a man called Andrew Gibson, and he worked as a clerk in the office of Selfridge's department store in London, a big department store, and one day, the big boss himself, Mr. Selfridge, this great tycoon, he was there in the office, and the telephone rang, and this guy, Andrew, he answered the phone, hello, Selfridge's, and the caller asked to speak to Mr. Selfridge himself. So Andrew passed on the message, and Selfridge just waved him away and said, tell him I'm out. Well, Andrew Gibson held out the phone, and he put his hand over the receiver, uh, the mouthpiece, and he said, you tell him you're out. <laughs> so Selfridge took the call, but he was absolutely furious. He was boiling and... He was furious that this, this nobody, this office junior, was talking to him, Mr. Selfridge, like that. And once the call is over, he really let rip into this guy. How dare you talk to me like that, he said. Who do you think you are? And Andrew Gibson, he said, with respect, sir, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. And from that day onwards, he became one of Selfridge's most trusted Employees must obey God rather than human beings. Now, fortunately, most of our lives, we can obey both with a good conscience. But what situations do you find yourself in where what people tell you to do goes against what God has told you to do? When do you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I am a Christian. And is today the day you resolve in a particular situation you're faced with day after day or week after week uh, to say, I'm just not going to do that anymore. It's going to be God first from now on. Well, back in Acts chapter 5, it's all getting pretty tense in the Sanhedrin. It's a bit of a standoff now. Nobody's backing down. And so one of the Pharisees, a man called Gamaliel, says in verses 34 to 39, basically says this, look, he says, look, in the unlikely event that this movement is actually from God, you won't be able to stop it. It's God. You can't fight against God. More likely, this will just fizzle out, and if we just ignore it, it'll go away. 
Now, sometimes when people are not quite sure whether something is from God or from not, or, or not, they say, well, let's apply the Gamaliel test. That sounds like a very wise thing to do. It's very reasonable. It's very moderate, isn't it? But it's actually really bad leadership from Gamaliel here, I think. Gamaliel should have said to the whole Sanhedrin, wait a minute, guys, look. How did these men get out of jail behind locked doors with a picked guard without any locks being broken? This sounds like an incredible miracle to me. I think we should conduct a thorough investigation into what happened. And what about these signs and wonders? Everybody is talking about amazing miracles. Everybody's getting healed. Let's interview all these people who claim to be healed. Let's see what they say. And if he'd done that, he would have found that Jesus is alive, actually. And that he really is the Messiah. And that this unstoppable new movement is actually from God. But everyone agrees to Gamaliel's plan, and they let the apostles go. But only after subjecting them to a good flogging. It's a minor detail in the text. Luke almost just skates over it, really. But it almost certainly means that they were subjected to the horrific 40 lashes minus one. 39 blows of a whip on your bare back. Each blow adding more agony to injury than the last. And no doubt, being released after that, bleeding profusely, all of them, with a stinging pain on their backs, they leave the Sanhedrin not complaining, not cursing, not shouting back abuse, but rejoicing, actually feeling honored for being counted worthy of discovering, of uh, suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, Richard Vermbrandt was imprisoned for 14 years in communist Romania over two different periods. And he wrote about his experience in a book called Tortured for Christ. And here's a memorable extract I'm going to read for you, short extract. He said it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. And it was understood that whoever was caught preaching would receive a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. And so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. And after what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was so rudely interrupted? Amazing. 
Well, as I close, just a few takeaways to help us to respond to God's word. Firstly, signs and wonders are not just a first century phenomenon. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we believe God still mends broken lives and heals messed up people. Ask God for a miracle today. Ask God for a miracle. We hit the wall, didn't we, at the ceiling um, last week about expecting a miracle? What impossible situation do you need to bring to God today? Secondly, remember this. You cannot follow Jesus and be liked by everybody at the same time. You can't. That doesn't mean you can just be gratuitously obnoxious, by the way. But sometimes we need to count the cost of following Jesus and say, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm in. I'm in, Lord. I'm going to follow you, whatever it takes. And thirdly, are you a little bit like Gamaliel, afraid to take sides? Have you maybe been looking at Christianity from the outside in and saying, well, I'm not really against it, but I don't know really. I'll just, I'll just wait and see. If you're not yet a Christian, come to Christ today. Don't sit on the fence any longer. If you come to Christ today, he will lift every burden. He will lighten every sorrow. He will calm every fear, and he will settle your troubled soul. Don't sit on the fence for another day. This, could, this is the most important decision any of us ever make in our lives because the whole of eternity is at stake on whether we decide to follow Christ or stay following ourselves. Make today the best day of your life so far. Amen. Let's pray. And if you want to um, ask God for a miracle for the impossible, maybe you've been praying for it already for years. Today is a new day. Today is the first day of spring. It's a day of growth. It's a day of new life. Maybe today is the day you ask again. You bang on the door again and it opens. Lord, do the impossible. Do a miracle, Lord. Or is this the day when you have to decide that I can't go on compromising anymore? I can't obey God and human beings. In a particular situation where that tension is there, where you know you're not quite giving God 100%, and God has convicted you about it this morning. Just make that choice, make that decision today that no... I'm going to go God's way. Whatever it costs, I must obey God rather than human beings. Is that you today? And then if you're outside, but looking in, you've never yet taken the plunge. Is today the day? Holy Spirit, come now, we pray, as we make our response to you. And whatever part of your word has touched us this morning, Lord, we pray you give us the faith to make that step, 
and that uh, you will meet us, uh, Lord, where we are. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you and we thank you. Amen.